Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. 
Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. This is another segment in the Wings Over Australia series. And in this episode, my co-host James Kitely and I visited Ian Whitney, one of the perhaps lesser-known heroes of Warbird Wreck Recovery. And he also has his own P40 project. Over to James. We're here with, uh, with Ian Whitney, and we're talking a bit about Ian's uh, P40 projects and the story behind the pilot. Oh, uh, Major Alan Stanton. Um, I know not that much about him because he was one of the few Americans we dealt with that wasn't interesting in discussing his World War II activities but we did find out talking to people that flew as wingmen that with him that were alive at the time but sadly over the last few years, few years they've all yeah. passed on and yeah. uh, apparently as a person he was not well liked but yeah. they reckon with 650 calibre machine guns he was a superb shot and from what I've been able to learn from his combat records, his favourite method of attack was head on. He used to play chicken with the buggers. Oh, wow, that is a, that's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And out of his, oh, there's several combat reports, but the eight that I've been interested in uh, researching, Yeah. Uh, in the special comments bracket on the combat reports, it's always... Uh, Exceeded V&E, oh, really? exceeded V&E, and the placarded V&E on the end model was 500 miles per hour indicated, and you know, of course the way to get the Japs was hit them and clear off. Uh, he was only a little fella, and the one thing that he did volunteer information-wise was being rather short-legged, he'd run out, run out of boot on the rudder pedal and the P40 as you know, as as the thing accelerated, yeah. it uh, wanted to wanted to roll, and he didn't have enough grunt to keep the thing, so he just rolled out while exceeding the V&E. <laughs> it's actually quite remarkable he came back then, because yeah. we were just talking about P, P40s being pretty robust aeroplanes structurally, and you were just saying, um, yes, no uh, records of them coming apart. So in there's um, records. Of haven't been able to find any records of things actually breaking up in flight. And it does sound like he was testing whether or not that was ever going to happen. <laughs> well, probably involuntary. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I said most information we were able to find out about the guy was has been sort of secondhand from the people that uh, he flew with. Uh, all I've been able to find out other than that was uh, his first... Uh, first love of his life apparently uh, didn't like him being away and uh, the aeroplane was named Keystone Kathleen Keystone because he was from Pennsylvania which right. was one of the Keystone states of the Union Yeah, that was decorated on the left side of the aeroplane um, ultimately from what I've been told which hadn't been totally verified the fact that he married a uh, WAF air traffic controller from the RAF base at Willytown. Yep. 
and the aeroplane that I've got here, 4210513, is the third P40N that we've been able to identify that he actually flew. Yeah. When he first went into combat at Dobbajura, he was flying the case with the extended uh, yep. vertical fin. Yep. And yeah, they went through uh, Nadzab, mainly from Dobbajura, based at uh, Nadzab. They went up the Ramu Valley to uh, Goosap, uh-huh. uh, Dumpu, and then on to Alandia. Yep. And the 49th traded out there. P40Ns or P38s. Yep. Uh, September 44 on BAC. Well, at that time, Stan had finished his stint and he went back and he was based in St. Petersburg in Florida. Yeah. And he became the head of the um, Allied Evaluation Flight they had at St. Petersburg. Evaluating Japanese aircraft? Yeah, Japanese and German aeroplanes that were coming in before the before Watson bought all the ones back from Europe and set it up at Wright Patterson. Right, okay. So the enemy aircraft flight was actually at St Petersburg, Florida. Okay. Uh, Would have been interesting to get some stuff out of him on that as well, wouldn't it? I was promised a tape many years ago of an interview that the local radio station oh yeah yeah uh made of him about his activities flying uh, yep. captured airplanes uh that was uh from them from a retired u.s air force general but uh before that got here he he fell off the peg and passed on so i missed out on that happens yeah yeah uh, alan stanton's son as far as i know uh, he was a university lecturer or something to the university um, in Pennsylvania, or I don't know which one. Yeah. But he had all of his father's citation, a couple of boxes of photographs and all the rest of it. Yeah. But he said that his father's wishes were that none of it was to ever be published, so that's disappeared somewhere. It's interesting because... Uh, uh, you get quite a variety with veterans, don't you? But that's a pretty, I think, an unusual, as you just said. Mm. Unusual for the yeah. Americans. Uh, yeah. Most of them, God, they, they can't help but talk, talk about, about it. And, uh, <laughs> wow, that's how I managed to get such a good photo collection of all this stuff. Yeah, we're just looking through some, uh, uh, well, exactly as Ian just said, a photo album with some amazing photos of the nose art and the aircraft and ground crew. Um, and that is that is really neat to have got as much together. Although you've been collecting part, bits and pieces for a while, haven't you? How long have you been yeah, playing with this airplane? Time slipped me by, yes. A couple of weeks, well, maybe a month or two? <laughs> found, found the wreckage of the airplane buried in 1974. So That's, I've been at it for a bit. Yes. So how did that come about? Can you tell the, the backstory of how you came up to be finding the wreckage to start with? Well, I, I started my apprenticeship with TAA as an airframey as an apprentice in 1966 and back in those days they hired guys that were classified mechanics and fitters. Right. The fitters they only did about half the schooling that we did because the guys that were going to be the mechanics were going to ultimately be your LMEs, your licensed aircraft maintenance engineers. Yep. I finished my time and uh, all of a sudden there was a massive downturn in the airline, so all the promised jobs of outstations, outstation experience and getting a licence and online maintenance and all the rest of it evaporated over the no- overnight. So yeah. 
three years out of the time, I was still jockeying a stool in the overall shop, which at the time I thought it was some sort of penance. I must have offended somebody, which seemed to be the standard for those days. But no, it was just the way the business turned down. Yeah. And a friend, a friend of mine who lives not far out the road here, he was in the same intake as I was. Uh, he was just a military nut like myself. We decided uh, mid '73 to head up to New Guinea, take some loot. We were going to go up there because we had a whole bunch of mates who were still up there. When we got there, we found out in November '73, TA and Answer were getting out of New Guinea, and that established the PNG Airways Commission. TA and Answer were going to second staff there for a while, but basically, first of November, it was going to be a whole new game, a whole yeah. new airline. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, in a drunken state. I was talked into going seeing seeing the engineering manager. who was noted for being a bit of a hard man. Went up to see him, and he says, "Right, first of November, you got a job." And I'm like, "You beauty!" And he said, "Oh, by the way, bring a bunch of your mates." So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you had to recruit on mass. <laughs> Twelve of us that were in the same boat at TA wow. all walked out the door virtually at the same time, which greatly offended management <laughs> and at the time we were told that our files would be marked never to be re-employed <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah it was the greatest experience because I had mainly went up there I needed the experience to gain my maintenance licenses and you know, spread my talents around but greater than that I wanted a Beaufort. Right. Beauforts were extinct and I figured there had to be one around somewhere with my name on it well through the efforts of uh, Monty Armstrong, who was up there working for David Talashay's yesterday's Air Force. Ultimately, he pulled the five out of um, Idaby, plus a bunch of P-40s and P-39s, and you know, which Bunny Darby takes all the credit for, but yeah. most of the time he wasn't actually there. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Monty and uh, Shorty Mines. Shorty Mines was with him. Yeah, he, yeah. well, he was on the very early trip, but when it came down to all the hard work of pulling those aeroplanes apart, Monty Buddy near worked himself to death. He had bloody moving dysentery in Christ. And he damn near died in the place. Wow. And then he was bitten by a death adder, which didn't Lose look like it was there. Tell me, are the aeroplanes worth that? <laughs> Aeroplanes are always worth that. <laughs> Good answer. Good. Clear, clear, yeah. that, clear that one uh, out. Yeah. Uh, ever since I was a small boy, you know, every waking moment has been taken up with thinking about aeroplanes. <laughs> you, know, you know, I always uh, wanted to be a pilot, but my old man told me I was too dumb to be a pilot. So, so barely I got into the engineering and maintenance side of things. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm still at it, even though I've tried to retire several times, but always recommend it stop being fun, I'll stop doing it. Oh, well, we can see some of the fun on the bench at the moment. You've got some uh, some pretty major wing parts, and uh, Clico's holding bits and pieces together here. So is that still fun, then? Yeah, yeah, when it stops being fun, I'll have a big clear-out sail, and I'll go fishing. <laughs> uh, but you didn't finish the story there. You were talking about uh, getting up to... You were talking about Monty getting those... Oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not yeah. easily sidetracked, am I? <laughs> <laughs> but he, Monty, uh, he made an epic recovery in 73. He was flown into an airstrip at Silly Silly, up at the top in the headwaters of the Watup River, and, which is 
probably, if it was safe to go there, probably one of the premier whitewater rafting rivers. Um, there was, I think it was four air cobras and three P40Ns that were abandoned there. Well, single-handedly, he pulled these things apart and the village people made these huge bamboo rafts, which looked like huge cylinders of bamboo. Yep. Strapped these aeroplanes on the rafts and then whitewater raft for several days down the down to the Markham River at Nadzab and then Adam, you know, manhandled them up onto trucks and got them down to the storage yard he had in Lay. And on that aforementioned trip, when I went up there, where I ultimately found employment out of the trip, a, a guy who I'd met on the plane on the way up there said, oh, yeah, you're interested in old aeroplanes. Uh, there's a guy up here, there's this American bloke collecting aeroplane bits. Well, of course, Monty had, had his business in Canada and worked for Talashay, so it took him years to get rid of that horrid accent. <laughs> <laughs> Kiwi with a speech impediment with an American accent. <laughs> and anyhow, uh, I, I got to meet him and one thing led to the other and every three week shift cycle we had four days off because I, I started there um, at the end of 73. Yeah. Drag dragged Chris up there as the new wife who'd never been any further home from that, other than coming around the Dandenong, she lived in Upway. Did, did you tell her it was a bit like the Dandenong's only a bit more so? I said, no, I said there's shitloads of trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't lying, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were quite big. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got up there, it was the first order of business, I caught up with this Monty Armstrong bloke and... Uh, Got, you know, I thought, right, well, this has got to be a vehicle for finding out how I can find this Beaufort that I was magically looking for. Well, out of the blue, he'd been up with Shorty and, and Darby. Darby had gone around Idape and had uncovered this vast graveyard of aeroplanes. Monty uh, organised the shipping company up there and this stuff started coming back. But Monty, like I said, just about worked himself to death. Or yeah. When the uh, P-40s and the aircrofters came back from there, Monty reckons he had a lead from an old bloke named Ted Fode who'd been a gold prospector up in, uh -huh. the, up in the Udy Creek area pre-war. Ted actually was a very interesting guy. He started... Uh, a helicopter, Australia's first helicopter company anyway, but he was quite content to live up at Finchhaven in a place with a dirt floor. Oh, yeah, I think it was yeah. on his third or fourth local wife and he had yeah. this tribe of dominated kids. <laughs> and after the war he got into scrapping and salvaging out what yeah. he could and he bought a lot of aeroplanes off the strip at Finchhaven, which it's a bit of a, they call it Finchhaven, but it's actually Drugger Half, and Finchhaven's about another 15, 18 k's north, oh, okay, further yeah, up yeah. the yeah. coast. That's where the harbour is. But Drugger's where they built the built the airstrip. He bought all these Thunderbolts and A20s and P38s that were parked up one end of the strip for disposal. Yep. When Monty introduced me to him, we started talking about all the stuff that we'd found a good mile and a half off the opposite end of the airstrip. So, oh crap, there's nothing down there. 
Americans always had to keep outside, they reckon the area had been mined because right. there was still a lot of Japs hiding out in the yeah. bush at the time. So I never went down there. Well, Monty and I went there and walked up this creek, and the only way you could get through the bush was go up the creek. Well, we were stepping over all of these Thunderbolt propeller blades and been bent like swastikas. Apparently, the way they used to disable the Thunderbolts is run them up and select gear up. And <laughs> so you had these, all these big curves like we propped, bent like a hark and through it. So, anyhow. That must have been entertaining to do and yeah. watch from a safe distance. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine, yeah. Well, Finchhaven after the war, well, Finchhaven after the 1970s was still under the administration of the Australian Navy. Oh, Because right. they were up there principally for ordnance disposal. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. that much stuff flying around. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. Every time the Kanakas up there start a fire, you know, slash and burn agriculture, the bamboo's going pop, pop, and then you get this almighty carumbo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, cases of hand grenades and artillery shells still go off. <laughs> oh, gee. It might be hard for one particular, you know, sidetracked again. A bit later on when we were rounding up A20 stuff, we knew there was a pile of it up in the Ramu Valley, and that Ramu Valley around Goose having that, even on a mild day, it's like standing in a pizza oven. It's right. That odd, even the blackfellas won't live there. Yeah. It's, it's an absolutely horrid place. This a valley full of alluvial gravel and it's probably parts probably ten or twelve miles wide and the mountains just go straight up. Right. Yeah. And it, it is it's like standing in a blast furnace. Yeah. We walked up onto one of the old horseshoe revetments, looked down and oh, big stack of five hundred pound bombs. <laughs> and they had the plugs in each end of the case and next to them there's a big mountain of tail fins. Yeah, they look a bit further around, there were some thousand pounders. And right on the end of the pile is a bright yellow one. This, you know, he's just bang, clang, thump. Turn around and nearly died. Monty's end for ending this yellow bomb towards the flaming land cruiser. Suffering <laughs> <laughs> Christ, you know, what are you doing with that? He saw oh, this one will be right. It's got yellow and it's got demo on it and I said I think that stands for demolition and he said no demonstrate and I said no I'm bloody sure that's a demolition <laughs> bomb <laughs> Oops, so we left it where it was <laughs> so your story could have ended quite dramatically there as it presumably was meant to do in 1975 sudden, sudden increase in light heat and noise <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. but uh, anyway we waded up this absolutely horrid creek full of twisted up metal, broken glass, and one thing I found that really cut your army boots to pieces are 50 calibre disintegrator links. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're high tensile steel and when yeah. they rust they got this razor blade type edge on it's them. Like a, they like, go through your work boots or your army boots like nothing. Like um, barbed wire in, in, the, in the dirt really, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah, I've had an experience with that too. Yes. World War II bar boy seems to be a lot stronger than what the Carapuckers <laughs> use. Yes. Right. But anyhow, they, we came out of the place in the bend in the creek where it was muddy but it was a bit bit flat and there was a big pig wallow there and we were looking at about a 12 foot high wall of vines and that with aeroplane parts sticking out of it. 
there was a huge parts depot and overhaul set up at Finch, which we only found out about in later years. Something like 35,000 personnel were in the joint, wow. Americans and Australians. Huge, yeah. And the harbour there at Dragas, that deep, they cut the natural limestone off, got rid of the overburden, the forest floor built up in the trees. You've got an ancient coral shelf, it's like a billiard table. Right. Brilliant, gloss white. And they cut it vertically. Richard Lay, uh, who's moved back to Australia, he, he, was, he was born um, up there, evacuated as a small kid. Um, he's always been interested in PNG history because the Lay family were the first people into the Highlands. Yeah. More recently. Subsequent trips up there from 99 onwards, Richard dug up heaps of photos and there's actually aircraft carriers, there's three of them, right up to this Coronas yep. Harbour and the aeroplanes are covered in P-51s and Black Widows. Okay, and yeah, yeah. They, they several several, several hundred uh, P-51s yeah. there, which I never even knew of P-51s in New Guinea. No, no. Well, not till uh, out in the Leron Plains, uh, Richard found one that was intact. Then the scrappies beat him to it. But Bruno's got the engine out of it at the farm. Oh, okay. There, yeah, it yeah. came down at a uh, supercharger fire, intake fire. And it's actually melted away. Yeah, yeah. So I've yeah. keep digressing. No, no, no. Don't, that's not a digression at all. <laughs> yeah. In this, uh, in this pile, which we subsequently called the Great Wall, we cleared it off, and apart from the fact that it was absolutely full of bloody snakes and scorpions, all the bits from the stores depot, and Monty had a list there, he said, right, I need five air cobra left-hand doors and seven right-handers, and it was, it was like going for a Kmart, and, you just, <laughs> and the stores people, they tied a lot of this stuff together in bundles, like really? air cobra wingtips, you know, tied together with block wire, and that um, was like a waxed linen tag with a yeah. brass eyelet, the stores oh, yep. people use. Yep. The brass eyelets and the remains of the linen tags still on the thing. So we took heaps of stuff out of it yeah. and got it back to lay. And Monty had just about finished up up there and uh, my friend, Dave Mottram, who'd uh, originally gone up to New Guinea with in 73, uh, looking at this stuff, and when I then subsequently found employment, he came up on holiday. He still worked the airline back here. He wasn't really interested in out there because he was collecting military vehicles here and had, his, oh, yeah. had yeah. his hands full. David came up for a trip and he wanted to have a look at a P 39. Part of his vehicle interest, he loved air cobras. Yep. I don't know where there's one sticking out of the ground. Uh, we just flew up on an island, landed, you know, we're going to be there for the day, and took him down into the into the creek. And what I've been in the creek there was an air cobra poking almost vertically out of out of the ground. Right. It was definitely second hand, but there was an air cobra, one you could actually go and sit in. Right. Anyhow, he muttered something about having a look at it, and they looked at me in a bush had to cut it, sod that. <laughs> Anyhow, he hacked his way into it and got around behind it, and uh, he 
injured himself on a piece of bloody metal and I went down there to see what was going on and he's actually standing on a P40 that's upside down and the undercarriage is half retracted and he'd walked into the backing plate for the brake. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Yep. And how that I how better wash him off so I went over the edge of this little bit of a cliff and down into the water and I'm actually standing on the inverted tailplane of a P40 with its tail legs sticking up in the air. Got some water on the cloth out to wash off. I tried to climb back up or I just slid down and I got bloody torn and you I knew it was just control cables and broken glass and Christ knows what. And the top two inches which I recognised straight over P40 pilot's armour. Right. Now at that stage I was only interested in P40s because Ron Lee down here, yeah. he, he wanted a P40 come hell or high water. When I first met Monty, this story is hard to follow because I want to yeah, keep yeah, changing yeah. locations. When I first caught up with Monty in New Guinea, he said, oh, when I get finished here, I've got a flash down the Iron Range North Queensland because yeah. there's a big stack of Thunderbolts and P40s down yeah. there. 73, about the time, it was actually in the same bunch of leave when I spent the week in New Guinea, we'd taken Ron's 210 up and we'd been to Truscott and all over yep. the place and we worked our around through Darwin, ran through the Gulf, yep. finished up at Horn Island and we met a flying doctor pilot and he said, oh, you got to go to bloody Iron Range, there's shitloads of aeroplanes. Oh yeah, uh, yep. too, too far from anywhere. Yeah. Came back to Melbourne. Went up to New Guinea, yeah, talking to Monty, but sort of the penny dropped when he said he was going to Iron Range because there was Thunderbolts and P-40s there. So I jumped on a DC-3 and flew from later Moresby, Moresby to Moresby to Cairns, which felt like a two-day trip, which I think it was. <laughs> uh, Ron and his cousin lobbed up to Cairns and we immediately jumped in the 210 and headed for Iron Range. When we came over the top, the whole place is on fire. <laughs> yeah. Department of yeah, Sensible Aviation, they put a bloody navade box in midway up the strip. Now this strip hadn't been touched since World War II. All of a sudden they decided they were going to use the damn thing. The department had a groundsman living there who was well past his use by date. Uh, the flying doctor pilot knew him quite well. Uh, and he said, no, this guy's keeping an eye on this stuff with you. Well, we lobbed in there and they bulldozed about two or three hundred yards in from the edge of the strip with this massive windrow of timber and fired it. <laughs> well, you couldn't get near it. Uh, I think we arrived on a Thursday. The fire had started on the Tuesday. So we buggered off to Weeper um, and went out, dived in Cape to have a look at the Thunderbolts on the beach because oh, yeah. there's supposed to be a third one in the saltbush country yep. inland a bit. Yep. Uh, couldn't find it, but anything up there, sort of that colour blends in that well. Yep. And you, just, you just can't see it from the air. So back to Iron Range, and by that stage the fire had died down enough a couple of days later to get in there and 
bloody pair of tracks will be heartbroken because you'd see where the things were. Yeah. And the Thunderbolt wings have been mounted in these big, like, Daxian angle frames, and all that was left the steel mount <laughs> fittings <laughs> and the stainless steel gun sheets. So, like, basically it's a torture for the guys. Same <laughs> as a. Oh. And I think the poor old groundsman realised he was in more shit than the early settlers because he's supposed to be looking after this stuff for it. And I was getting more and more depressed and hostile at the moment. Well, is this it? He saw there's one more off the end of the strip, but it's absolutely rooted. You wouldn't want that. Now, if you turn over a couple of pages, you'll see what was sitting there. The first of the colour photos. Yeah. Right. A burnt wing and a P-40 Enfius light. And I said, oh, I thought you didn't, wouldn't want it. There's no clocks in it and the glass is busted. <laughs> well, that aeroplane's now flying with Chris Prevost at Sonoma in California. Oh, right. Yeah. I've seen it over there, actually. I was there a couple of years. You got it flying... Three, four years ago. Oh, that's been longer than that. Yeah, a little while now, and he's getting a lot of money out of it in the rides. Uh, yeah, some, um, money, some money out of it. I don't know if you get enough to pay for what. Poor old George they... Perez's P fifty-one. Nobody wanted to fly in there. Yeah, it wasn't, and it's keep all I wanted to do is fly in the P forty. Yeah. So ultimately, Ron and I got that back. But anyhow, the two tender delivered me back to back to Cairns, jumped on the DC three, and. Back the walls, he's back to lay. Right, right. Yeah, so poor old Ronnie never realised his dream of getting a P40, but anyhow, if you go over the next pages, Chris and I went up to, because um, Monty told me about it, he said there was a, a wreck of a P40 in up at uh, Dompu. Yep. In the Ramu, and that was it. Well, that pair of wings turned out, you know, by the standard of the day with what Monty was getting out of, you know, he got out right. of silly, silly and I'd be, they, they weren't worth bloody even bringing home. To, they're the wings that are now under the E and um, Motac. Oh, right. yep, yep, yep. Yeah, well, they're the wings that are actually under it. It was rather a sad story, Ron. Ron bought shut aviation at Moravan yeah. and there was a big court case and whatever and he had to sell his had to sell his P40 collection off, but I traded that pair of wings to Ron for the wreck of the Mark V Spitty that he'd got from um, uh, from Nil. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of all gone round and round and ever ever increasing circles. So yeah, from that uh, when I discovered Major Stanton. I saw the foam and the flags and the guy's name on it and I thought, oh shit, sorry Ron, I'm supposed to be getting bits to fit out here. But it turned out that Alan Searle, you, you caught up with, you know Alan, do you? Know of him, yeah, no, yeah. I know him myself. He, he's an ex-long-time New, New Guinea pilot through DC-3s and whatever up there. Um, Ron, when he had the both of his two tents crossed, I think in the four years I was there, I think you know, it was he flew up four or five times in the two ten. Yeah. Anyhow, because I'd uh, got and decided to keep Stanton's one for myself and all the goodies that were in it, I said, said Ron, don't be down hard, there's more up there. Well, 
little did I know, even then, I was only scraping the tip of the iceberg. That was a long time later when we cleared the all the bush away from the air cobra. Yep. The back of it, you know, behind where the engine mount and the armour plate and the refuselage, it was down in the dirt. But what was holding it up was the leg of an inverted thunderbolt. Oh. There. So uh, this is all in the one spot, all, all these aircraft? Yeah, it's all in an area of probably about four acres. Right. And what we've been able to find out is um, it was where they quarried the coronal rock out to build the airstrip. But of course, they could only go down 10 or 12 feet hit the water table. Yep. Right. For some reason, which absolutely escapes me, the War Assets Commission sold everything that they could. But for some reason or other, down to that opposite end of the airstrip at Finchhaven to the disposal end, they buried all this stuff. Now, if you jump forward to 99, when Bruno Carnival and I went back there, it took us five years to get a permit off the government to do it. Well, we've pulled out several more P-40Ms, uh, a few Thunderbolts and two really good P-38s, one of which I was telling Jones before. Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's, I think it's about the oldest surviving P-38, but it's also the only combat veteran. P-38. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. Out of the first 10 that arrived at Archerfield to be deployed to the Southwest Pacific, it was number eight. It was the eighth one to arrive in the country. I think it was about November or December 42. Okay. Now, General Kenny, he wanted to take out of the 39th fighter group and the bloody um, 39th, 38th, but the yeah, 39th squadron, 38th group. And the 49th fighter group, he wanted to take the top guys and form an all P-38 unit. They're the first one in the Pacific. So all the guys that went on to um, later fame in the P-38s, uh, well, Richard Bong was one of them, but uh, Tommy Lynch, mm -hmm. um, they all got to fly that one aeroplane. But it was the nominal owner was a bloke named Ken Sparks. And he was later on killed, I think, in a fifty one accident in the States when he rotated back. But he's been credited with anywhere between eight and ten aeroplanes okay. in that particular P thirty eight. Right. And it was one of those ones that was actually deployed for a short time to back up the forty fourth squadron. It was in Guadalcanal. Right. Yep. Mm. And, it was, yeah, it was one of the early P-38s that had the big shark's mouth painted on each in the cell. Yep. And it had big 33 on it. And uh, fortunately, there's quite a few surviving photos of it because in one of his uh, combats over New Guinea, he had a mid-air collision and wiped off to the left-hand side of the tailplane extension and a big lump of wingtip and he got the thing back to Whoa. back <laughs> on the ground. Wow. Yeah, that's going some. So how many aircraft did you get out altogether? It's not so much aircraft, because they, uh, they're all in bits and pieces and yeah. that, because of the way they were demobbed. Out of that pile up there, I actually got uh, three ends, and from another location up in the Bololo Valley, I got what, at the time I didn't know, I knew it was an E, but I didn't know what E it was. Yep. It was John Jackson's A-29-7. 
Oh, right. And yeah. it was um, Squadron Leader Creswell from 76 Squadron, yeah. who was actually sent from Richmond up to establish a new airstrip at Berry for the deployment of the Wirrawais for 4 Squadron. Yeah. And he arrived up there, and of course John Jackson had been killed by that stage. Now Jackson was killed in a different aeroplane. Yeah. The day he was killed, he was flying an aeroplane because number seven was in for maintenance. Right. Now, at the time, uh, they had two serviceable aeroplanes. Subsequently, they managed to get a couple more serviceable. It was uh, Flying Officer Woods, Timber Woods. He was in A2928, yep. which is the one the Rafting Museum's got. Yep. Pierce Dunn had the cockpit of from Mildura. Yep. And the one I found, A2097, uh, back in those days, what you did was you wrote to a bloke named Lee something or other in Moresby, and he was the, the assets yep. uh, <clears throat> disposal man. I just wrote him a letter and said, oh, you know, there's the remains of an aeroplane up there. I want it for a possible museum exhibit. And he sent me back a letter saying it approved. And I think I sent him $5. Right. It's but not like not like that anymore, really, is it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. $5, you wouldn't even get the postage stamp for the joint. <laughs> no. But the interesting thing is, and uh, with our subsequent recovery work up there, you know, from 99 onwards, the War Service Materials Act was actually set up to so that the Australian taxpayer could derive a return because the Americans flat out refused to pay war reparations to the plantation owners oh, and okay. all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because countries like Lever and Kitchen and right, you know, Lever and Kitchen Company, which had their massive copper plantation up there, you know, for soap making and all the yeah, rest of it. Yep. They, even though they were a British company, they were phone registered in Australia and yep. their plantations. And yep. that, well, of course, the plantations were absolutely devastated. Yep. Yeah. So the Yanks flat out refused, and somewhere on the track, post-war, when they had their bloody House Congressional inquiries to sum up the cost of the bloody war, yep. they were going to hit Australia up for this massive bill for bloody roads, harbours, bridges, airfields, the whole lot. That's why things like the docks at Finchhaven are blown up. Right. And, yeah, because Australia was bankrupt. We couldn't afford the bloody stuff. Yeah. Yep. So as a pot sweetener, we were given, Australian taxpayers were given access to this stuff to salvage it for whatever return you could garner out of it. And that is why I was dead passionate about getting into bloody Torakuna because it's the only place you're allowed to salvage US naval aircraft from. Right, yeah. Because yeah. it was all turned over to the Australian government. Ah, yeah, okay. Anywhere else on the planet, the US Navy maintained they still own wreckage trails, yeah, ships, yeah, yeah. bloody anything. Hmm, interesting. So it's been a convoluted and long-winded thing. I just wished to cross that something of you know, what I have now, if I'd have had it then, it's the stuff we used to pass up in the bloody bush. But even the wreckage yards in Australia, oh, that's too far gone. They couldn't ever do anything with that. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is that what was regarded as an unviable restoration every decade has changed, hasn't it? Oh, now you, nowadays, yes. as we in notoriously know, you're pretty much down, cliche, but pretty much down to data plates for some things. Well, that's what... 
Teeters are building C model Mustangs yeah. out of you know the wreckology societies in England. Go around, they yeah. dig up a piece of long drawn. Well, well, we think it's this one. Bang, new aeroplane. Yeah, <laughs> it's a neat trick <laughs> too. <laughs> they don't give a rat's ass. Yeah, looks like one, smells like one, sounds yeah. like one, yeah. and it costs the same as owning a real one. Yeah, exactly. sure does that. It's got to be it. Yep, yeah. exactly. And like, you know, I'll tell anyone that, buddy, that's right up to the point of boredom. I've gone to hell zone buddy length with this aeroplane here to incorporate as much as Major Stanton's aeroplane into it as possible. Just being pedantic of the fact that aeroplanes by the nature of their construction, everything on them's replaceable. And that's what happens to aeroplanes, everything's replaced except the data plane. I've had the, been blessed or presented with the bloody unique opportunity here to have been able to salvage enough of that. It's, it's going to be probably the only combat veteran P-40, and certainly probably combat veteran of a lot of aeroplanes, that's going to have the original throttle and all the mounts, his instrument panel, his rudder pedals, the oh, bloody yeah. armour plate, yep. having all of that structure, the upper and lower long drawn yep. frames, Leaving up upper, upper half of the stainless steel firewall oh, right, with yeah. the dent in it yeah. is original. Wow. I've salvaged that. Now, I've got quite a good stock of P40 parts, and a lot of them are in a damn sight better than what yeah. the stuff was out of that one I dug out the riverbed. Yep. But I've gone to that length to preserve and restore it. Yep. Yep. So, Major Stanton was obviously an ace. Uh, how many of the uh, kills did he get in this particular aircraft? Uh, as far as I've been able to go, probably two. Okay. Uh, the bloody combat reports, very few of them will give you the actual tail number of the aeroplane, or just squadron number 20. Right, right. yeah. Well, right. All these aeroplanes were number 20. Yeah, so it doesn't help at all. So it doesn't, doesn't help you, but uh, just going from the time frame they had the yep. aeroplane and the as an adjunct to finding out that his son had all these uh, citations and all the rest of it, um, there was one of one of the guys. It was another retired general in America. Said, "Oh, Barlow Stanton's daughter lives in Sydney." No, oh, yeah. Well, when I when I used to fly for the department. Uh, rather than going out down the bloody boozer when we were in Sydney, I used to get the car to drop me out of my mum and dad's place. Yeah. So I rang Steve Bird, still up, and I said, oh, her name's Karen, um, but she's married, so I don't know what her name is now. Within 10 minutes, she rang me back and said, there's a Karen Stanton in the phone book in Campsie. <laughs> Wow. I said, oh, well, the marriage must have worked out because apparently she'd married an Australian bloke because her mum was Australian. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And she'd moved back to Australia. Well, sadly, I lost track of her because I rang this woman up straight out of the blue yep. and she'd probably be the same age as me. So, you know, what a um, magazine writer or something. I said, no, I'm not that low. No, no, he did that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wouldn't thought, trust me. I just thought I'd throw that. <laughs> I'm very pleased you did. I feel flattered in negative I, I said, no, I'm an engineer. And she said, well, what are you talking to me for? And I said, well, I, I've got your dad's aeroplane. 
Dad done that in an airplane. I said, no, nah, during World War II he did. No, he didn't. Uh, well, his name was Arlon Stanton. Was that your dad? Yes. But what makes you think he got his airplane? He's got his bloody name on the side of it. <laughs> yeah, all she knew was that old man had flown airplanes. She had no idea he was an ace. Had no idea what he'd done. He just not talked about any of that yeah. stuff, really. All she knew that he that he'd been to New Guinea. Yeah, she, he could have flown up there in a DC three before yeah. she knew. Yeah. And and I got a very interesting letter there. She when she spoke to her brother about it, he wanted to know where she got the information from. Why she was asking the questions, he said, in, in the family circles, it opened a real Pandora's box. Yeah. And it was yeah. her that sent me those photos. Oh, right. Anyway, one sad part of the, this whole saga. Yep. You take that letter out of that slipcover and you see there's another photograph under there. Now, have a look at that photo. Oh, yeah. See the crew chief's name painted on it? Yep, just underneath the cockpit. Yeah, Master Sergeant something or other. So he's sitting in the cockpit of the P-40, it's, yeah. it's an M, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, that was written in this real funny rounded sort of block letters. Yeah, yep. yeah. When the mud came off the side of the cockpit, it actually came off stuck to the mud. And right. I wasn't quick enough to recall what I saw. To, to this day, I don't know whose name was the oh, other wow. was. Right. Crew chief and master sergeant, something or other. You didn't have a third hand with a camera at, at that particular. <laughs> <laughs> Even getting your camera out of your bag up yeah, is yeah. a major undertaking. You've got to bloody find somewhere trying to clean your hands. The sweat's yeah. pouring off you. You take your camera out of a bag, and as soon as you lift up, it just goes fog. Yep. Trouble is, most of it's internal. Yep, yep, yep. And it, it is a fantastic climate for killing cameras. I bet. Well, 99 through to about. 2004, go up there in recovery trips. I've made sure I took my old Pentax MEs with slide and colour print film in them because the buggers took these new whiz fangled bloody electronic cameras. As soon as they hit the humidity, they just start <laughs> shutting down. Oh, wow. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. No. No hope. Highly tuned electronics for. And I've looked at that through a 10x glass. I'm sure you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about read the bloody pixels off the paper. <laughs> it's tantalising, isn't it? Because yes. you can almost you can convince yourself. In fact, almost certainly, if you get uh, if you get the name another source, you'll be able to confirm it matches because it'll be enough. What I thought I might do. Yep. I might put my name there. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? It does look like Whitney, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good old American name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you've got a great album. Before we started talking here, you showed us the photos of him as a, as a cadet. Is that his cadet photo that's been Um No, he would have graduated oh, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's uh, got his bars on his shoulder. Yeah. And he's got his wings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's looking yeah, fresh-faced and happy was, and all the... It was just before it. they shipped out. And... and Karen Stanton couldn't help me in identifying who the other guys were. But as a total side to this, yep. on the later trips back to Finchester, sort of 2000 vintage, yep. uh, when we were uncovering the P38s and P47s, we found a, a, another P40 that I previously hadn't known about. All the other ones that were uncovered, I discovered those earlier on, then covered them back over. Yep. Uh, it was flown by a bloke named Hal Harris. 
missed the boat by that much. We got the aeroplane home, he started researching it, and he'd only just died. Virginia Harris, lovely old lady, even even sent us copies of her wedding photos. She's Mm. an Australian. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yep, she's from Melbourne. And she married Hal, and I think in 1946, she actually went, I think it was... 2,800 American war brides went to America. Yeah. Yep. But of course, had to wait for the availability of shipping. And so it was well into 46 before they went. And Ginny Harris was on the same boat as Stanton's wife. Oh, and right. Yeah, because Harris's airplane, the one Bruno's building. And Fuselage is up to the same state as that, and that's just out of the road here. Okay, yep, yep. Um, and there you H.W. Harris, yeah, Lieutenant H.W. Harris painted on there, and there was one Jack Flag. Because I, what we do, as soon as stuff comes, he exposes the light in the jungle, the paint falls off. So what I try and do is wash quickly with some fresh water, because it dries in a microsecond. Yeah, yep. And they these cans of bloody polyurethane clear. Oh, yeah. Over the top of it. And it, it adheres to the old paint just long enough for you to be able to then decipher what's going on. Underneath that was bloody um, J. O'Neill, and there was three Jack flags that had been painted out, and Harris's flag had been superimposed oh. over one of the other ones. On the right-hand side of the bloody thing, uh, oh Christ, what was his name? I'll think of it anyhow. It was yeah. the crew chief's name was painted there. Yeah. Jason Vandegraaff tracked him down, and the bugger at Fumman pushing eighty, he was still a salesman for a brewery. Really? Yeah. He's a man who obviously loved his job there. Yeah, he was, yeah. He got who the, wouldn't? He got the job when he came back, and he still had the same wow. job. Wow. But anyhow. What I did was, that was some drafting trace paper, and I traced his name. And the letter he sent back to me, it was, it was amazing. It was the years just peeled back, and he could actually remember painting and having trouble with the lacquer yes. drawing before you got partway around the, partway around the stroke. And... It was amazing. He could reckon he could smell the jungle again, and he could <laughs> feel the sweat burn in his eyes. The years just rolled off. Wow, wow! I hope it was a good, good memory. Because mm. <laughs> it's a pretty tough environment, like you say. Oh, look, there, there used to be a, he's, he's died just recently. A guy who lived down here at Drysdale. Oh yes. He was 49th fighter group, and Bob. He called himself Bob the Yank, but bloody. He, he spent his whole post-war breeding cattle. Yeah. But uh, he was the bloke that Fifth Fighter Command sent down to the Ford Works at Geelong to yeah. try and figure out how to make the bloody drop tanks for right. the Thunderbolts and for the P-40s. Yep. Well, he married one of the women from down there and he didn't go home. All right. But here he, he was, um, he missed out on going to Lovely Darwin. He went straight from Archerfield to Horn Island mm. because 49th had a detachment on Horn Island for a while and, you know, because Horn Island uh, took a fair bit of a hiding from yep. the Japs. Yeah. Uh, he thought, P-40 
people actually trying to box, drop bombs on you wasn't very supporting. And I thought, must have been, how the bloody hell in a place like New Guinea did you actually maintain aeroplanes? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I've been up working on the back of a DC-3 engine and put my hand on the bloody top of the nacelle and then had to go to hospital with bloody burns. Because yeah. it just burns the skin off you. Oh, that what you mean? He said, yeah. He said, all your tools rust in the first five minutes. You can't get enough to drink. So you're continually dehydrated and you're seeing double and your horizon's toppled. And you're... And then you climb into the radio bay of a P-40E that's out on the tarmac. <laughs> I said, how the hell did you get in there? And he said, oh, yeah, I was a bit smaller and a bit more flexible. And, he's, and I said, but cross, you know, there's no room in there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then the air raid alarm goes off. Saw your buddies bugger off and leave <laughs> you. And he said, but you need two guys to help lift you back out through the radio access door. <laughs> You can just imagine it, can't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so he was lucky. He, he was trapped inside the fuselage of a P-40E and the whole place was bombed and shot up and he didn't get hurt. That's, you've used up most of your luck there, haven't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how long ago did you start the actual rebuild of the aircraft? Oh, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's interesting. I would have started actually tidying bits up of the... Before I actually started rebuilding the main structure of the aeroplane, I probably spent five or six years on bits and pieces, yep. uh, which that would have started in the late 80s because you see you've got to build a house and have a job and two bloody daughters through school, although they reckon I never educated them, they went feral. <laughs> uh, there you go. Um, Oh, it was a bloody odd. You asked me a question when I actually started the airplane. I don't know. <laughs> Bits and pieces, photos. You see, a lot of the time, too, I just get into it and don't bloody take yeah. photos. And you sort of forget where you come. There's a photo here somewhere. There we are. 95, there's JV and there's Major Stan's cockpit. Right. Okay. So one of the things we can see from these photos for, is that the, the cockpit section had a, was reasonably true and square when you yes. dug it out. Yeah. Which, looking at the earlier photos, you could easily think it had been badly bashed up and twisted from the... No, the cockpit was really straight because it was still mounted to its wings. Right, so the, yeah. the wing, and which is a tough old... Yeah, basically bit of structural and yeah, that's greatly out of sequence, but John and I, John Bruce and I have been mucking around for ages, cleaning up bits and pieces like that, but basically 95, that, yeah. that would have been the start with it, right, yeah, how hard can this be? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's just photos inside the aeroplane and, and as usual I took dozens of photographs but there's always uh, the ones you didn't yeah, take the ones you didn't take yeah. but where are we there Do -do 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 -do. yeah so that's uh, that's up to 2005 so 
it was actually fairly late in the piece. Mm. But what we'd done in the meantime, uh, there's all the bloody controlled jack shafts and yeah. underneath the front of the aeroplane is a big cowgirl frame. Yeah, I was just looking well, at that. I, I built that up for myself and made one for Cole Payne and one for Jack McDonald. Right, yeah. And like when I got into rudders, uh, I built 36 rudders. Right. And they had a try and offset, but it turned out the one thing I couldn't get any more of was the time. It's yeah. one thing having the bloody financial wherewithal, but the time's the one thing you can't go and buy. That's right. Once we started on the fuselage, though, the fuselage just rocketed together. Yep. You know, it was, it was that easy. And of course, Mike Nichols, do you remember Mike Nichols' P40N? Yes. That was the bloody identity of one of the ones out of the same dump. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was, that was called the Saint, that aeroplane. Oh, okay. But I forget what it was talking It was um, 7 Squadron 49 fighter group. Right. <laughs> Michael was bloody funny. Car came out of the driveway here one day. This guy gets out in his in his puffy blue uniform and hang on, it's not one of ours. Bloody New Zealand Air Force. This bloke introduced himself and he's gonna build a P forty. I thought, oh yeah. So I walk this way, so we go down to the reserve collection down the back and he's looking at all the P forty stuff here. And he says, oh, how many of those you got? And it was the adapter block for the end that goes yep. between the tail plane and the fin for when they extend the fuselage. Yep. Oh, I said, yeah, I got a few of those here. He said, oh, yeah, I really like one of those. Boom, there you go. We'll come out of the shed. There's P40 build, how much have you got? I said, this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's how it all starts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You don't have to be crazy, but it really helps. <laughs> but yeah, so once I got stuck into the fuselage, that hour I made several fins, half a dozen rudders, sold those off, and I built a fin and a rudder and swapped it. Swapped the Garth Hogan for the tail plane. Oh, right. So you obviously also got a Wirraway here. Yes, the Wirraway. That was the first bits of aeroplane I ever started collecting. And of course, in those days, we were collecting this stuff, and it was just to try and save history because the uh, Department of Civil Aggravation said, you know, thou shalt not fly this stuff, and that's the final word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, People like Graham Shutt with BFF and yep. uh, you know, IVI Mustang and then Bob Eastgate with BAB yep. took the department to task on it and that's when our uh, dispensation on the old ANO 108A permit to fly system came in. Okay. Uh, basically at the time it actually came down to Subpoenaing the, subpoenaing the Director General of Civil Aviation to bloody court in Canberra to show just cause and reason why these things couldn't fly. Wow. Since then, and right up to the present time, in the department, being bloody staffed mainly by ex-service personnel, 
in the whole career they have it from indoctrinated into them. You know, you people are special, you're the people are the only people who can maintain or operate these aeroplanes. Mm. And of course, when the civilians do it, it makes their whole bloody career path look like a bit of a lie. Yeah. And they really you could, you could bloody, it up a bit, you know. <laughs> uh, they really hate being a reminder pack. Well, it was actually at one of the first New Zealand Warbirds meetings where exactly that point was raised. Yeah. Yeah. Said, unfortunately, civilians can do it with a bloody far safer accident rate than you guys have had. Yeah. Makes your whole career a bit of a myth, doesn't it? What have you found interesting there, James? The, uh, just the really interesting, just seeing the skinning um, on the side of the tail you got there. Uh huh. And the, and the, and the, uh, the frightening. Um, That's actually the trick bit because all the bloody hinges yep. up the back end have got to be in perfect alignment. Normally, you know, if you're 10 thou out, little sort of, yeah, you know, little cam over centre of that, you've got to, you know, you've got to quite have your wits about you doing that. Right, yeah. yeah. Because there's quite a few P40s around that don't travel nice. They've got a sweet spot in the middle and they go oof over the centre and the rag on one side, the rudder goes limp and wrinkly and the other side goes really tight. Okay. And you can really see here what a sort of bodge mod the whole back end was with this extension. And well, that's why Donovan Berlin quit Curtis. Right. It uh, was over exactly that. He, he knew problem and it actually came to service with the F's with that yep. big horrible Merlin intake. Yeah. Because I had to have enough of an intake area for the radiator yep. and the oil cooler. Yep. But because you had your bloody carburetor intake smack in the centre of it. So yep. the hole was this great gaping morph. Yep. And what was happening was the hot air was building up the front, wasn't going through the system fast enough and yep. it was tumbling out the front and was burbling all the way down the back. Yep. It was particularly noticeable, but apparently around 15,000 foot trying to do a gunnery run, and the aeroplane was snaking. Snake. Yeah, oh, right. probably snaking worse than a VTOL Bonanza. <laughs> and uh, he'd wanted to redesign the front of the aeroplane, and yep. he wanted to redesign the front of the Allison powered ones as well because they're having a bit of the same problem. Uh, but they couldn't interrupt the production on their production commitments to the war department with that bloody intense, right. couldn't interrupt it. So he threw his hands up, told management to get stuffed, and I think he went to work for Consolidated or something. Sounds about right, I don't recall, yeah. Yeah, and uh, of course the new guys on the block said, oh, we know how to fix it, we'll just give the rudder a bit more leverage, so they move it back 21 inches and away you go. Yeah, right. It is. It, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? You can, you can see it looks all nice and neat. Uh, if you had that fairing over the tailplane on, yeah. it, would, it would all look nice and neat. Um, but that that is photographs really showing how basic they just. Mm. You know, it's almost they didn't pop rivet it on, but it's almost like someone's pop riveted a few inches on the back end and. Uh, um, it was was crudely, it, up nice. it was crudely engineered, but when you think of the load that it's got to transfer back to the fuselage. It's quite bloody enormous. Now, if you go down the back where you are and put your face up against the trailing edge of the rudder yep. and have a look at the change of shape in that fuselage. Wow, yeah, it's a real kind of uh, yeah. dish. Because the width where the rudder hinge is, 
yep. has to be the same width basically to enclose the hinge as what it is up at frame 16 which is under the trailing edge of the tile plane where the original fuselage finished. Yeah, so the great. fuselage actually goes in and then it almost goes parallel towards yeah, the back. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's sort of fish shaped or something mm. almost, yeah, weird. But the amazing thing goes, Curtis, when it, when it came to metal aeroplanes, they knew their ship. The only compound skin, really, is the very spine one. Yep. And these little fellas that go down there where the big closeout U goes at the trailing edge of the wing. Yep. There's two small skins going in. They're the only ones that require specialist compound curving on the whole aeroplane. Everything else is made out of flat sheet. And yet it's well, a very... Well, you get the cows, of course. Yeah, yeah. Deep shit. And right. wing tips, but... Uh, mm. And it's actually a very curvaceous looking aeroplane too, you know. Yes. Compared to, say, the squared off Mustang, say, or whatever, which is a later... And that's the thing, this is really a an early 30s design because it goes back to the P36 family and so on. It's interesting how far they did stretch it. Yes. And Literally. <laughs> yeah, I can understand Mike Nichols' love for the P36. Right, that is an absolute gorgeous mm. aeroplane. That is, apart from an Oscar, a P36 is one aeroplane I'd really love to fly. Is it? Just looks right. Yeah, they're very, they're very nice. But going back a bit, what was special about the Beaufort? Why did you desperately need to have a Beaufort? When I was a kid, my grandfather was a painter and decorator and plaster, and he used to wallpaper houses and all the rest of it. Oh but yeah, yeah. In the in the early sixties, um, he like everyone else, he was having trouble being employed. So yep. what he was doing was actually wrecking old houses, the old bayside mansions, and all yep. the rest of it, ripping all the cornicing work out and repurposing it. Yep. yep. A lot of these houses had libraries in them. You know, the, I don't know whether they were deceased estates of yep. was Virtually tons of old books you had to get rid of. Yep. But there was a lot of magazines and yep. paperback books. Yep. And one of the early paperback books, grandfather said, oh, you're just an aeroplane, you might want to read this. And he chucked me his paperback and it was Barker's uh, Strike Hard, Strike Sure, ECR Barker, wow. Yeah. yeah, and of course there was that and the ship busters. Yep. And I couldn't get over it. You know, from, from what I'd read, you know, the Americans, you know, they won the war by killing anything that they came up against and yep. the success they had against shipping with B-25s, that was enormous. It, these poor bloody palms out in the North Sea and then later on the Mediterranean with both. It's getting an absolute tripe shot out of them. Yeah. And I found out somewhere along the track that they were, you know, they'd actually built Beauforts in Australia and there weren't any. Now, when I... Uh, a couple of problems in the first two years of my apprenticeship because I was abandoned at 15 and left to fend for myself because my parents moved to Sydney and I was... I'd started work down here. Right. After two years, I was sentenced to Sydney to be under the more direct control of my parents. That's, that's <laughs> another story in itself. Yes. But anyhow, the apprentice master was Harold Thomas. Oh, there you who go. Who didn't know Harold Thomas from a bar of soap. But yeah. Anyhow, so Parramatta into bloody Central Station on the train, and of course, then you go through all the subterranean bloody walkways. Well, there was this rather attractive young girl that had a book and a flower stand there. 
Right. Um, and of course, always stop for a momentary chat because I was inevitably running late. <laughs> uh, and I spotted this book and it was the book, The Battle for the Battle of Britain. It was about rounding up the aeroplanes for the Battle of Britain the film. Battle yeah. of Britain movie, which of course hadn't arrived here at that stage. Yep. And so I'm sitting in class and Mass Master Turner is on confiscating that and said, Yeah, you and which ten other blokes. <laughs> <laughs> right upstairs, so upstairs there's only the old bloke sitting there with his glasses down here and chain around the back of head. What are you in here for? And I said, Oh bloody Royal Lamb's gonna take me book I only bought this one so you can go and get stuffed. Oh, that's always a good way to impress people. What's your interest in me? Showing the book. Oh shit, I haven't got a copy of this yet. Where'd you get that? Arnold <laughs> uh, <laughs> Harold's ultimate death and then his poor old Alan dying. Yeah. I was on a permanent student discount any time I visited the museum <laughs> because that became my second home. Everybody weekend I was out there and of course it was alternating between the Camden Fire School punching the 150 around the circuit area whenever I could afford it. And then yep over at the museum because all of a sudden I was in heaven and Harold had those, oh, I don't know, probably before your time even, his whole silver, um, silver something or other photocopies, the very first of the photocopies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dave Wiltshire was a TA pilot who got his old fiver kind. Yep. Well, he did have it out there. Dave Wiltshire had sent Harold Thomas from PNG photos of this bloody massive pile of aeroplanes that ought to be. Yep. Well, I went with both it because I knew from a contact with Harold that we'd built 700 of things yep. here that are classified extinct worldwide. Yep. 1430 odd that the ponds were built, there wasn't a single one left. No, you're right. So, I've got to get me one of these. Well, the first one I saw was 141, the fuselage that the Pierce Dunn had yep. that he pulled off the farm at uh, Nil. Yep. yep. The ex buddy uh, armourist camp yep. one. Uh, that just. Uh, I was. I had no idea how I was going to do it, had no idea how it was ever going to happen, but I made up my mind I was going to bloody get one. Right. And I did. Yeah. And in fact, a funny little story in the story here is uh, I showed you last night the Warbirds directory with your name against a certain uh, Beaufort uh, record. So yep. yes, you did. Yeah. We've, we've seen the paperwork. Yes. <laughs> well, it's become quite an attraction here because I had the thing just down behind the truck there on a bit of grass area, whole fuselage with the centre section on it and the tail on it and that. And we Buggers from the ultralight school down here at Penfield yep. had a bugger in one of those Gemini thrusters. The pair of them, instead of looking where they were going, they were <laughs> hanging out there singing it. Bloody fell out the sky, thought they were going to land right on the top of the bloody thing. Oh. It fluttered down like a shot duck and sort of, yeah, and away it went down through the trees. No, <laughs> uh, oh, a procession of people coming to drive. Oh, jeez, mate, where'd you get the old bomber from? Oh, found in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But getting that aeroplane, oh, 
all of the stuff that I found in New Guinea, all the other P40 stuff, and that, there you go, people say, oh shit, why didn't you get more of it? I was that in hock to the fucking Commonwealth yeah. Bank in bloody lay, I'd, I'd gone to the max. You know, and I got that aeroplane back here, it was sent straight to the, because uh, the RAF Museum, the um, Air Commodore Tonkin, he was, mm-hmm. he was the officer commanding, not the CO, he was the OC. He dragged me into the office, because um, I was down there shooting my mouth off a piss poor riff at the bloody RAF Museum, you know, across that. A pilot of Gingervick and a Mustang, which Squadron Leader Duffy had claimed as his own. Yep. And he even put his name on the side of yep. it to prove it. <laughs> Tonkin was an ex second tactical air force Spitfire oh, okay. pilot. Yep. He was actually a Vader. Um, late in forty four he was brought down over Holland. Yeah. On a they were looking for V two transporters. Yep. And anyhow, and the the museum finished up with his log books and his bogus Dutch underground bloody yeah, papers, paper and, and pass and all the rest of it. And he drove me and he said, do you really think that there's salvageable aeroplanes up there in New Guinea? So I'm bloody certain of it because I've been up and back and yeah. said, yeah, we've got to do something about saving it. It's, it's not just the RAF's history that's laying around up there, it's the our bloody history, it's yeah. part of us. Yeah. And, uh, the whole point of bringing the Beaufort home at my own expense was to prove to these buggers because he said that he would then move heaven and earth to try and get some sort of official recovery program going. Well, it only worked as far as the A20s, the Boston's. Yeah. Because right. yeah. uh, I brought back the photos of Jessica sitting there at Goodenough Island. Yeah. And when I came back from New Guinea, I started the department. No. One of the trips that was going to show and tell, you know, happy snaps. Oh, I just got these bloody photos printed. Yeah. We had a very gentlemanly, you know, old world gentlemanly senior examiner airman named Warwick Addison. Rather tall, skinny guy, beautiful head of fun and brushed back white hair. Uh-huh. And here's a photo of this A20 sitting in the bloody bush. I said, my God, man, he said, Where'd you get that photograph from? So I photographed it. That was my aeroplane. I said, oh, yeah, both of us, something like, you know, shitting me. And he's, he said, no, 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 no. He said, uh, he said, I was laid up with a rather severe bout of bloody dysentery. Yep. And there's another pilot was detailed to take my aeroplane. And we were told that if we bent them, the Americans couldn't supply any more because They'd got those ones, they were actually Dutch ones. I was going to say, the Dutch were a bit small because they they thought they were theirs too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. In fact, if you talk to some Dutch people even today, they they tell them about the fact that they got (laughs) stiff with bloody C and D model B25s instead of their beloved A20s. Yeah, sure enough, poor old Warwick's laid up and uh, then goes over to Gaspar and gets the crap shot out of it and uh, yeah, various things like hydraulic failure, uh, overrun, nose gear collapsed and she broke her back just to the back of the cockpit. And the first intimation I had that the aeroplane was there was some photos Langdon Badger showed me when he got his Mark oh, yeah. 5 out. Yeah. Because it was not laying 30 feet from Jessica. Right. No. Christ, when we got to the place, 
not only were there the first time I'd ever seen Douglas B eighteen bolo wings. Wow, okay, yeah. they were there, yeah. Uh, we found uh, several boomerangs and eight Beauforts. Yep. And the bow fighter, which as far as I know is still there. Alright. Rob Grinant went up there and he took the P forty N one and the K that Graham Orphan's got at a marker. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing I have money. Warwick comes hunting me up and I'm working away on the F-28 and he says, oh, I've bought my logbook in, old boy. I thought <laughs> you might be interested in this. So I'm going to look through his bloody logbook and I said, what's this? And he said, oh, that was rather sad. He said, I, I, I had to abandon that one. So somewhere between um, Archerfield and through all that horrid country where the Stinson disappeared, yeah. there's an A20 in there. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, the right hand engine burst in the flames, so he called up his sergeant in the back and said, uh, Better get out, fella, you know, we're, we're really on fire and yep. fire's not stopping. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> he jettisoned the canopy top, which is about bloody 10 yeah, foot long. Yeah. The sergeant got out through the ventral hatch. Yep. And he, he trimmed the thing out and he stepped out and rolled off the back of the centre section. Yep. He said, bugger me, no sign of fire. And he said, this thing would just get on flight. <laughs> so, whatever the range of an unpiloted and nicely trimmed out A20 is, there's, there's one at the end of the rainbow somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. But yeah, but he, he was that ticked off because the one thing about that early A20, when I, when I first climbed up on it, yep. the blackfellas had ripped the top up because the top goes from the windscreen yep. and it's all removable panels right back to the gunning place yep. at the back. Yep. Well, the panels were laid open and the radio gear had been ratted out of it. Yep. There was a bloody air conditioning unit in there. Now, I didn't know that air conditioning unit, but I've actually got a photo of it. Oh. And I, and I said to work, I said, you know, that is an air conditioning unit with a big electric motor and a compressor on it. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah. You know, that was, you know, a customer option from Douglas. <laughs> and I'd never heard of bloody air conditioning in airplanes, other than, no. well, other than what happened with the time yeah, current airliners. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But... Here in the real sad part about it is when their A20s were wiped out that wasn't Moratoy or something like that, Norm for something like that. They yeah, they couldn't get any more. Because right. by then yeah. they'd managed to get a trickling of yeah. A20 Gs. Yeah. They couldn't get any more, so they had to convert to bow fighters. Near it was an absolute pig compared to an A20. I get the impression the A twenty was a very nice aeroplane to fly, and uh, but he but not that a gentleman's aerial carriage. <laughs> yeah. But not necessarily that tough um, compared to later. No, they've they've got a little tiny wing compared to the size of the aeroplane. Yeah, and it's the so, sort of thing of you know you get a few hits in the wing, you disrupt the airflow, starts you're going down. No, I think the both fighter would probably be in a much more hardy aeroplane, but mm. you know. Cross getting sport with bloody nice things like tow brakes and bloody nose nose wheels, bloody gear and yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, he, 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 he reckons, he, he reckons that, that that early A20, particularly Jessica, yep. it was a lovely aeroplane to do aerobatics in. 
Yeah. It flew like a fighter plane. Yeah, yeah and they're faster than a Mark V spit at low yeah. level, I understand. And um, yeah, in, interestingly, my um, my wife's great uncle, <clears throat> he uh, he was in the RCAF, uh, Canadian family, and uh, he flew with the RAF in Europe, and he flew um, uh, Boston's before going on to Hudson's, and was mm. killed just before D-Day, but because uh, they had two, the RAF had two squadrons at Boston, but they used them for interdiction, and that's where I got the, the toughness thing from, is um, they, they lost a lot from what, you know, not, yeah. not huge damage, yeah. but yeah, fast, and, and yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that at all, very, uh, very neat aeroplane. Yeah, I've, I've talked to a couple of veterans who flew them yeah. in, in Europe, and, and they absolutely love them. Yeah, they're they're love them. Yeah. bloody hot rod. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, although I'd be curious to know what the really early ones with the kind of tiny vertical tail would have flown like, I suspect they yeah, might have been see, a bit they interesting. they only had Pratt 1830s in them. Oh, okay, so, yeah, 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 so not too the, much talk. The old DB7s, I think it was only the 7B was when yeah. they went to the big fin and yeah. put the R2600s in yeah. and of course sadly I mean, uh, they thought it would go one better and put a pair of R2800s in one and it pulled the bloody wings off it at the factory. <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah he did a fast run past the bloody flight line you know showing off pulled up and the aeroplane went that way and the wings yeah. parted company. Yeah. Is that different me with Beechcraft like Bonanzas and all the the way the wings are, long, you've got like what they call a bathtub fitting. You've got a spar boom, sheet metal web, and then riveted and nailed all around that. There's this forged aluminium fitting, which is like a, it's called a bathtub, you know, because it's a yep, half yep. round, sort of boat shape at one end, blunt at the other end, flat with a big hole for a bolt through it. Then on the centre section, you've got a corresponding bathtub. Or yep. The A20 uses that exact oh, same okay. system. There's yeah. only four bloody bolts hold the wing on. Right. And they go into these bathtub fittings. And of course, the A20, when you have a look at it too, the wing extends a hell of a long mm. way out past the nacelle to yep. the point where the wing outer panel is probably probably not as big as the Cessna 180 wing. Yeah, it's no. a very small wing outer panel. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So, how far have we got with the saga? You were going to tell us about re actually recovering the uh, the P40 because <laughs> we'd almost got to the P40 mm. and then we got, which I think actually sounds very realistic because there was an awful lot of distractions before you could do what you wanted to do with these aeroplanes. Well, well, it was yeah. You know, the actual recovery of it, uh, Monty Armstrong and I started with bloody picks and shovels. Oh crikey, that'd be hard work. <laughs> It's what's now familiarly known as the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> the more time, effort and bloody money and sweat you put in, the less you seem to be achieving. Yeah. And till we got to the point where Alexander Smith, he was the head of the what was called the vocational school at Finchard. Right. They had things like a timber mill and a, and he was yeah. a carpenter by trade, so right. In P and G, even at this present date, you know, the better off ones, uh, you know, they start school like our kids do down here, but up there, sort of, in those days, yeah, you might get a slot in school by the time you're 10 or 12, yeah. and by the time you're 18, you'd probably finish sixth grade, and that was yeah. about the extent of your education. Well, what the vocational school was doing was taking young fellas that were at that age, you know, I'm yeah. 18, I got myself some school and type thing. Yeah. 
it's punt them off and they'd either turn them into foresters, sawmillers yep. or carpenters, or, but mainly teach them how to bloody mill the raw product out of the forest so you could actually build a house out of it. Right. Instead of waiting for a tree to fall over and building a hubby off it off some yeah. stolen roofing iron. Yeah. And they, Alex took pity on me and he said, right, if you've got a, if you've got a few bucks, he said, uh, to chuck towards the fund, he said, I'll, I'll send the guys down. Right. And, and all the picks and shovels from the gardening class. And then I actually moved a lot of dirt because yeah because there was no machinery there. Well, yeah. right towards the end of it, the uh, end of my time there, I've still got, I've got this bloody great gaping crater in the ground, and a P40 cockpit sitting on a set of wings there. We actually subsequently worked out because it's flooded in the wet season, the whole thing's 10 foot underwater. Yep. Every possible crevice is full of this super fine silt, and we reckon a, a standard wing outer panel for a kitty hawk weighs a good four and a half ton. <laughs> That's why I actually had to cut the wings off next yeah. to the fuselage, which was bloody heartbreaking, but I was determined I was going to have that damn cockpit section out of there. Right. Yeah. And I, at the time, I had no idea what I was going to do with it, the whole bloody lot. Um, Ted Fode, who I spoke about earlier, yeah. Heli, heli trans these helicopter utilities over Benning, it was yeah. our first helicopter company. <laughs> he was known for his alcoholic consumption. Yeah. He was, he was one of only about eight white men that lived at Finch Island full yeah. time. He had the very first Range Rover I'd ever seen because that oh, was yeah. the new the new Ultra Plus of yep. Bosch four wheel drives. Well when he bought one, he bought three. <laughs> <laughs> One for a part ship because yep. if you own a British car, you're going to need parts. And he bought the second one because he knew damn well he was going to write the first one off. <laughs> <laughs> to get from the airport at Finchhaven back to home, you had to cross this little river that still had the World War II Bailey Bridge on it. And of oh, course, really substantial angle on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's still got a big dent in it. <laughs> from his Range Rover, there you. <laughs> he turned up. He turned up down here one day because he he reckoned that we were telling Porkies yeah, about yeah. You know, all these buried aeroplanes. Well, he actually turned up down there in his little Datsun Ute. He said, "Christ, yeah, what are you guys here? You're trying to do it's like farting against thunder." Yeah. I'll see if I can help you. The next trip up three weeks later is this. It was, I remember it was a drop land shear. It was a, like the smallest bulldozer you could buy. Right. But it was the only one. Yep. Well, that, I cut the wings off, yay far out from the yep. fuselage, and we actually dragged it, moved it. Yep. Uh, put some logs underneath it and dragged it out. Uh, we got it down to the dock at Finchhaven. Yep. Uh, Monty was there. We had... QEC units, less engines off A20s, which is like the whole leading edge yep. of the centre section with oil tank, engine mount, undercarriage, truss, the whole lot. Yep. We've got a couple of those out for Talashay's one. Um, and this pile of dismembered P40 parts. 
We then went to Lutheran Shipping, and the Lutheran Shipping Company, uh, typical of the missions in New Guinea, they, they went there to do good, and they've done very well indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the quote we got back, and I distinctly remember the comment being, we want to rent the space, not buy the fucking boat. <laughs> yes. So, all the stuff is in dragged, 18 case, back to the vocational school, one, okay, so we're going to, you know, all this backbreaking work, getting yep. this out. how the hell am I going to get the thing back to lay so I can get it out? One of our DC3, well, our Director of Operations, said the senior, senior DC3 captain, I'd been testing the bejesus at him for ages for a fly of a DC3. Okay, yeah. And he just walked in there one day and he said, you're ready for that uh, thing you want to do? With the DC three, I was like, nah, nah, nod, nod, wink, wink. He said, right, my FOs just came back from leave down south, so uh, better do a check ride. Said, Where are you going, Larry? So I think we'll go up and do some circuits at Finch. So, um, any chance of, of a weight and balance exercise and spend a little bit of time on the ground? <laughs> He said, oh, what are you up to, you shifty shit? <laughs> so I rung Alexander Smith up and I said, any chance of getting a bunch of the boys down there, we're going to put all this crap on the DC-3. So all my shit I've got sitting on the concrete pad. Yep. Any chance of getting down to the airport? We'd be there and say, oh, probably a couple of hours. And, okay, we'll see what we can do. Well, you should have seen it. It was like ants at a picnic. Uh, <laughs> all these little black legs and all this really heavy stuff. We called them the Black and Headstrong Power Tool Company. <laughs> so we go get up there in the DC3 area. Jesus, like, fucking Christ, what are you doing? Oh, I've got to get this stuff back to life. Yeah. Think it'd be a problem. He said, Well, I'd better make sure it's almost dark and get make sure all the pen <laughs> pushers and the office workers have gone home. So here we are. So we get all the stuff there, and I said, Right, you jump out. He said, I'll go and shoot another couple of circuits, make sure the young bloke's up to spec. And they said, And away we'll go. The DC3 comes back, laid all this bloody stuff on the thing. And it actually, at one stage, looked like it wasn't going to fit around. <laughs> I've got to say, easily a chunk that could cut just... off bits of <laughs> tail and bloody wing stubs, all the A20 shit. Yeah. Yeah, we loaded it in, and what we got was they had a um, Ferguson track. No, it was a blue Ford, one of the and had a carryall on the back of it. Yeah. And someone had come up from the school, come up with a load cell. Right. So we had roughly weights, and they were out with a paintbrush and. Yeah. Painted rough weights on this, and you know, pound written on everything. Yeah. Uh, and I think somewhere in the collection of photos, I've got a black and white photo of the inside of the cabin <laughs> of the DC3. Full of crap, but <laughs> yeah. I've got I've, four and a half thousand slides and several thousand black and white and colour prints. I've got to put in some semblance of order one day. Yep. Chris keeps saying, what are you going to do with this stuff if you drop dead? And I said, well, you're going to have more mates than you can fucking stick out. <laughs> I said, and half of them you won't even know, but That's they're right. going to rock up the driveway, I reckon they've got some sort of yeah. claim on this shit. Yeah. Oh yeah, buddy, we've got the stuff back to lay. The Beaufort centre section was sent 
um, on pallets, a hell of a steel bandit, in which I stripped, unbolted, and derived the leading edge and trailing edges off. And all I could forward was that as deck cargo, a 20 foot container, and then I made a box. Right. A rather large box, which I should have maybe, if I'd been able to afford it, I should have gone another 20 foot container. So all the kitty org stuff and the favourite cockpit and the rest of the boat and everything, you know, it was just jamming that old red nissen out there. Yep. To get the Beaufort fuselage in the box, we carried it as far as we could, there's still about three foot sticking out. So I got a piece of 4B2 timber there, put it in the recovery hook on the front and on the center yep. section attach point, <laughs> pushed and it dropped in. the clutch <laughs> and shoved it in because the piece of wood spat out and stoved in the front panel of the nest truck, which it still to this day is stoved in. <laughs> Badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, honorable injury. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so and it was all addressed to Ron Lee, care of Shad Aviation, yep. Moravian Airport for onwards shipment to the Raff Museum, Point Cook. Well, Paul Air Commodore Tonkin, he was a bit downhearted when the boat had arrived, so Ron and I spent a week bolting the boat together and sort of all the P40 oh, yeah. stuff was shunted off to one side. Anyhow, um, Rath publication, but it was a photographer from Richmond who actually published a couple of books in the sort of early 70s. Uh -huh. um, he actually made a bit of a crusade about it. He actually managed to get the Melbourne Sun down there. And, oh, yeah, a, yeah. and we put the cockpit section onto the mid section, the wing center section and the rear fuselage with a bowfighter fin, which is the only one that had the stage, and we dumped an old wrecked turret in it. Yep. And Tonkin had his photo taken, and well, it sort of nothing happened for a couple of weeks, and there was a ripple of excitement went through, well, shit, you know, this stuff is there, we can go mm. and get it. But sort of after, after the bloody Boston saga fizzled out, and, and I hailed that bloody Boston recovery as one of the great bloody recovery successes anywhere on the planet. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. bloody Benny's baby and Big Nig and yeah. bloody Helen Pelican and yeah. Jessica came out, plus the couple from bloody Sidor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, nobody's recovered aeroplanes that good unless it's the bloody Norwegian pulling up yeah. good shit out the bottom of the fjord. It, right. yeah. it was bloody marvellous. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, Sadly, anything that's gone down Australia has had bloody 75 years of bushfires through it. Yeah, and, and people often picking stuff over as yeah, well, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, you know, like some of the early stuffs that, you know, Sabritsky and bloody Ken Jacobs and that were involved in New Zealand. You know, the, the stuff, mm. anything was either bloody shredded because it went into, yeah. you know, scenery that was bloody near 90 degrees or they managed to get it out by other means. Yeah, you know. yeah. No, that's, that's uh... But even, uh, yeah, Don Sabrisky's story about, you know, recovering the bloody Baffins and the Vickers Vincent bloody wrecks and yeah. all yeah. the Hind stuff. Yeah. They're phenomenal bloody stories, but that rap recovery of the bloody A20s. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have a look at the stuff, it was bloody wild or even on the subject. Uh, not that I sort of 
read magazines. Get a chubby on looking at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, you seen the. Why film? the hell they didn't <coughs> keep going and get a Beaufort and bloody? Yeah. Yeah. You see the photos of the um, the A twenty flying in the states again. The A twenty flying in the states. <laughs> There's actually one sad fun thing with that, and yeah. I think bloody uh, the bugger's gone and cut the corners. The A twenty does have a rather large and distinctive carburetor intake fairing, yep. which goes right on the top of the hole in the cell, yep. and it fares in right down the very back. Well, they look like put something off a DC three and just got oh, poke. Yep. Yep. So, but oh, but in the gorgeous aeroplane. Well, considering how long we've been without one flying, and as you're saying, how few that because again, like the I mean the. As you rightly say, the Beaufort was extinct, they were an unknown. Um, yeah. And the A20 was almost extinct. I think there was a couple of Latin American ones. I think the one went to yeah, the United well, States. Yeah, Colorado had the ex Bolivian fuselage with no centre section stubs, yeah. no wing outers. Yeah. There's yeah. One, one in Russia, I think, isn't it? There's one in Russia. I don't know. I don't know that's uh, a I think that's a well, real bodge together. Well, yeah. mate of mine who's got his 150 down here, and we're resting on a 59 model for him. Uh, he won Victorian Young Business of the Year award and went over to Russia to study railway infrastructure support because he's a railwayman. Yep. And he married his interpreter. Um, she, yeah, she got him into the bloody Menino yeah. Museum. Yep. And, and I said, if you ever get a chance to get in, tell him we're going to have all the junk shit. Yeah. You should see what he photographed the junk shit. Yeah. No, they got easy. 109s up the arse. Right. Oh. I got 111, bloody 190s, more fuck off 189 stuff, Henshaw 126. And it's all dismembered, but bloody Daniel Benzes with spinners and cows on props on them just yeah. stacked out. Yeah. Wow. But anyhow, but that A20. Yeah. It looks like it's been done with Bondi commercial aluminium pop rivets and the last big snowstorm they had over there, which had been two years ago, it, the wing out has collapsed. Yeah. yeah. There's also one in, I think, Brazil in the Brazilian um, mm. National Collection. Yep. And that's about it, I think, isn't it? Pretty Australia's pretty well got a monopoly on it. Yeah. And there's that group in England that have been rounding up A20 bits, bits for, bloody, yeah. for as long as well, I've been reading fly past. They've got a good collection of bits, but it's not yeah. a complete aeroplane yet. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Yes, it's model. like sitting down and, oh, we're going to build a Sterling and Albemarle and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and an A20. And a Hanley Page HP42. Yeah. Oh, no, that's didn't that die out? That, that got shitloads of publicity. And I thought, well, I've always we had bloody Monty Armstrong. That as much as always we had a major bloody falling out in later life. The guy actually, his, his thinking was way ahead of his time, and and I, yeah, you know, I said at the time, you know, seventies, I were up there drinking shit. How can you possibly make this shit? And he said, Well, always remember the prototype wasn't done with forgings and casting and all the rest of it. Fabricated by yeah, hand to see yeah. if it fitted. Yeah, yeah. So if it can be built by hand the first time, it can be built by hand the bloody now. Yeah. That's a very good, I've not heard that, but it's a very good point because the vast majority mm. of prototypes were done that way. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we haven't even got onto the RZF Museum's P40 that's been converted into an E down yeah. at Wigram. 
Right. Yeah. That's a story in itself. I love that story. But you know, the whole reality of it is if you said it's all right, I want to pay 40, I want you to build me one, it's going to cost you at least 1.7 million, probably two. Yeah. You're not going to build a bloody $3 million asset or a $2 million asset for five bucks. No. no. Yeah, you won't find a Rolls Royce in the shed for five dollars. So you've just got a bloody punch through the grief. Yeah. See that aeroplane there? Why? Yeah. Yep. I recovered the remains of that one. That was flown by Captain Dick West, and that had six on it. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's just an aside. <coughs> that's one of the other projects. So what I've done when I built this one. Yeah. I've made fuselage sets for six. Right. One's Bruno's, Bruno's second one, which is flown by a bike, <laughs> forgotten his name. Yeah. It's actually build number 1316. Yeah, there's a photo of me in the jungle standing in it. I want to get another photo of the thing finished with me standing in it. Yeah, that'd be great. So, um, engines? Were their engines still there? Or just no, no. The aeroplanes, because it was a salvage and repair and overhaul depot, yep. that's what the aeroplanes were buried for. They were stripped. Yep. We found the remains of probably 30 early model Thunderbolts, D2s, D8s, 10s and 12s, from the windscreens to the mainframe where the armour plate was. The sides were cut out of them down to the top of the fuel tanks. And we found the sides. They've got the solid quadrants, trim boxes, flat landing gear, slate design. The other side's got all the bloody radio slates and everything on yeah. them. I reckon they took those parts out for spares because in the tropics you're not going to hop into a red hot airframe and undo a throttle quadrant. Right. You just cut the bloody things out and put that stair stores spares, and the hulks would just pile oh, into yeah, a heap. Yeah, cross right. yeah. mm. yeah, we. We've uncovered most of a B-17, a very oh, early E there, uh, but yeah, it's been that badly smashed up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, on top of it was a Beach 18 or C-45. It was even a bloody Corsair and Avenger on top of all this shit. But there was a US Navy uh, Lockheed Lodestar. And when we took the dirt off it, this is bloody, the whole aeroplane, like the tailplane was off it, laying in the back, and I opened the cabin door. You know, bit of WD-40, played with it for a couple of days, opened the door, this thing had been buried under 10 foot of dirt, and I walked the full length of the bloody cabin, and I got it to the cockpit, and what the buggers had done in the cockpit looked like they'd detonated some magnesium flares. Oh, yeah. the end of the cans, the mag yeah. flares were there. Yeah. And they melted, the cockpit floor and the bottom out of it. Yep. And it had gone right down like a corrosion trail through the dirt till it got to P, Bruno's P40N that yeah, was right. underneath everything. And where this corrosion trail had started, it just roached the shit out of his fuselage. It uh, just basically dissolved it. And yeah, right through that whole area, there was, uh, yeah, that's funny, she'll show you recovery people. Yeah. Gas axe, oh, still sore on the legs of a thunderbolt. But have a look at the condition inside the wing yeah. base. Yeah. 
Well, the Westpac blokes, you know, they're the Thunderbolt specialists. They reckon if they get these P38s out of the way, it's going to be a production line of early model Razorback 47s. Have we found that many bloody wings and tails and that? But we've got at least five P47s out of there. Five identifiable ones, yeah, three, yeah. three real good ones and two not so good ones. There, there are millions of people around the world who go to air shows every year and see these planes and don't realise that there's a few mad buggers like yourself who have gone and got them out of the jungle. Mm. And, you know, we've got a lot to thank you guys for. Well, it's, I appreciate your saying so because not many people have even uttered that. They just think, oh, geez, what are you fucking around with that shit for? <laughs> but it was for it. Yeah, it's a lot of I don't have the physical and the financial resources to actually get any of this stuff flying, but I all I can do is take some sort of self-satisfaction of the fact that I've saved a lot of aeroplanes. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah. Probably like, you know, bait over my Mozart, you've got to be dead for a hundred years for people to appreciate what you've done. <laughs> well, just hearing this story, I'm appreciating it right now. Yeah. So. And I think, you know, going back, Going back to the early days of the recoveries in PNG and so on, I think more and more people are realising. You look at the, the you know Pacific Aircraft Rex book now. Most of those things, um, and now and now you know somewhere. We managed to save a lot. Mm. But sitting out the bloody farm. Well, I'm amazed you ever went back twice because I'd have, I'd give one go and give up. Frankly, it looks like a lot of hard work. I've probably been back a hundred times yeah. at wow. least. Well, sitting out the farm there, we've got the world's only surviving B5N2 Kate. Yep. We've got the, uh, the only surviving Dynamark 1. Yep. Right. Yeah. And they're the ones that were surrendered to the buddy Kiwis at Jackano Bay. Right, right. Because you know the zero that's in the museum at Auckland? Yep. There was three zeros flown in. Yep. Well, one was recovered by Monty Armstrong, and then the RAF knocked it off from Jack and O, and Kermit Weeks ultimately finished up with that. Yeah. Um, one is Auckland. We've got the diner and the Kate, and the Jake that was surrendered, I found that. It's in 35 feet of water right off the buddy loading ramp where we loaded, because we had all this buddy uh, Kiwi Corsair ship. There was. Uh, Four sets of brand new wings, tail planes, elevators, fins, rudders, wheel doors, flaps, the whole lot, all that went to the States. And of course, the ones that come out of Salvador yeah. uh, in the 70s, there was three of them that could never be finished with no wings. Yeah. Those wings we got out of Jackano. Yeah. The ex-Kiwi wings have gone on to those. Right, right. So they're now viable propositions. Yeah. But the bloody Jake, um, New Year's Eve for 1946, the Kiwis controlled Jackanoe Bay and the bloody Jake was moored there. Well, someone got some bloody jungle juice into them and they opened up on this thing with the Tommy guns and they bloody shot holes in the floats and sunk. And I was standing there, we were loading the bloody Corsair stuff onto the barge to get it back to lay. I've seen that photo before. But what I was actually looking at was the barrier islands out on the coral oh, yeah, reef. Yeah. The trees out of it. And I was racking my brain trying to think, 
where I'd seen that view before, and of course it was a bloody black and white photo in Rene Francon's book, yep. Japanese Aircraft of the Pacific War, yep. arse end of a jake, and these same trees. And this buddy, young Kanaka, come past and says, oh, I want to buy some crayfish. And where have you been? So I dived in here, the crayfish live in the, where yep. the old dock is. What else is down there? Oh, a big flabo, she stopped. Uh, so, oh, how big? He saw one place at the back for a machine gun, a place for the captain. I said, oh, wheels? He said, no, it's on two big boats. <laughs> I said, where is it? He said, under the, where the ass of the barge is, it's right under there. And I said, can you dive to it? And he said, no, it's almost too deep, but I can see it. And I said, what's going on? Saw so big red yep. signs <laughs> on the wings. So the Kate's there. Yeah. The third zero, right, a strip of jackhammer, and it's on a headland. Yeah. Like really steep. It's about 250 feet high in the water, runs across the headland, and then it's a bloody steep cliff. Yeah. Well, all of course, air stuff we got here, well, there's the remains of three Kiwi um, Venturas. Yeah. Really? Yes, and one's got 68 bomb missions painted on the nose of it. Shit. And that fuselage used to be suspended. It was up in the trees. Oh, yeah. They'd taken the wing out and the tail off it, and the trees had grown it, lifted this thing up. This horrible noise in the bush was the bloody cabin door banging in oh, the right. bloody breeze. But, yeah, wow. the coons got in there, cut the trees down, and they've cut the back off because they thought they were going to get money for scrap. But yeah. Through the village, we found more than enough stuff for probably another two RNZ AF Venturas. Oh, wow. But here, off the end of the strip, there's a PBJ 1 oh, yeah. upside down, yeah. and it's actually a Kansas City built B25D. Right. It's upside down. The right hand wing sitting over the top of it is a Kiwi Corsair that was on takeoff and it clipped a parked one, well, right. one that was sitting there running ready to take off and he got a bit of a swing up. He lost four foot of his wing and he actually managed to abort the takeoff and right. stopped. Well, they shoved her over the over the edge and then they put a five squadron Wirraway on top of it. And But they set fire to the bloody Wirraway and it burnt most of the rear fuselage of the Corsair away. But here's this bloody Corsair sitting there. Yeah. Buddy. And it's sitting over the top of this inverted PBJ. There's a Ventura here. And we've salvaged out the remains of a, where they burnt the buddy were away. There was a um, five squadron boomerang was burnt as well. But we've got the wing of that out the farm because the rest of it was just rotted to the shitter. Yeah, yeah. Most people just think there's only the one Ventura wreck up there, the one at Tallasia. Oh. Yeah, well, and that'd be a bloody superb aeroplane to recover. Yeah. That'd be a bloody ripper. Uh, it's far enough off the beaten track, but what I like is the bloody Cannon Arm B-25 that's just down the bloody strip from it. That's the one I always wanted. Right, right. But, no, but he, over at Torakina we found about another three or four Kiwi Venturas. We also found a couple of bloody Kiwi Dauntlesses. Wow. Yeah. No, they're still there. Uh, it's funny, uh, 
talked to the bloody bloke fella and he said, oh yeah, he said, no. Nah. He said, that, that picture, I had an aerial photo taken in early 46 of the dump. Yep. And it's full, there's a uh, Kiwi uh, Avenger, a very complete Ventura, and about, I think it was either 9 or 11 uh, Kiwi P40s. Okay. And in amongst that there was a P70, a Douglas P70, an all black A20. Right. Um, three more Kiwi Corsairs. And then there was a huge pile of vehicles, yeah, white half cracks, buddy, and they either Ford or Canadian Chev Blitz trucks, but they were little short body ones with that big uh, bomb carrier girder yep. on them. There's about a dozen of those and hundreds and hundreds of uh, 44 gallon drums. And they're actually full of bloody pitch or tar. Right. We sent the black fellas in there because Ron Lee and I went there in 77 and we yep. found one of the five squadron dumps, uh, two Beauforts, a Hudson, nine boomerangs and seven whirlaways. The five squadron pole we were looking for was they received a full complement of brand new P40Ns. Right. And the war finished, New Year's Eve 1946 or Five Squadron must have figured, well, if they're not coming for us, but if we haven't got any aeroplanes, we're no longer a squadron, so they piled them up and set fire to them. <laughs> <laughs> Buggers were caught, Marshall. <laughs> but anyhow, we didn't find the pile where the P-40Ns were, but this other bloody pile we'd heard about, oh, all that's in there is all these 44-gallon drums. Well, Bloody photograph turned up, which I've had blown up with this massive aircraft dump, and it's all the bloody RNZAF stuff and all these 44 gallon drums. Well, we were looking at hiring the, the very last trip up there, which was uh, 2009. Yep. We actually got a permit to go to Torokina. But it was going to cost 25,000 US a day for the barge. Uh, it's nearly four days to get there, yeah. four days back, and we wanted the barge there for 10 or 12 days while we loaded it. Yeah. So there was a bloke from, um, because of the bloody war over there, the Civil War finished, Australian educator, Australian University educated, bloody Kanaka. He was with the World Health Organization, oh, the yeah. UN. He was actually employed by the UN. So he wasn't going there as a PNG government rep, he was going there as World Health, WHO. So we bought him a camera. Yep. We bought him a phone. So we'll go over there and what we're looking for is all these 44 gallon drums of tar. Because if we could find those, <coughs> Hamish Sharp that owns Bismarck Shipping. Yeah. He said, if you can find me a couple of thousand drums of tar on, sell them to the public works department there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, that'll probably cover your barge eye. So all we've got to do is leave room for the tar, because even if the drums are bloody rusted away, the bloody tar is still good. You can bloody heat it up and mix yeah, it and recycle it. Right. Yeah. Well, this bloke comes back and he said, oh, 
I haven't got your camera and your phone because I was robbed. <laughs> you take your photos, oh yeah, so I used up the whole card. Right. Okay, so what'd you find? And he said, oh, I found your drums of tar. What was just behind the drums of tar? He said, oh, all that sort of stuff that you're looking for, all these aeroplanes, they're all broken. You know, wings, bodies and tails, they're, they're everywhere. Well, how high was the pile? Oh, much higher than this roof. <laughs> and yeah. And, he's, and I said, oh, what else did you find out? He said, well, I didn't take much of the photos of those broken aeroplanes because I didn't think you wanted them because they were all broken. He said, the ones over the other side, the road, the blue ones, you were one of them. And he said, the only thing broken on them was the wings. And I said, well, how are the wings broken? He said, oh, some of the wings were broken like that and some of the wings were broken like that. And he said, and the little ones, their wings were still out straight. I'm going weak at the knees and I yeah, yeah. don't show interest, don't show interest, don't show interest. And he said, oh yeah, but they're still there. And I said, oh, do you think we can make a deal with the people? He said, oh, look, if you took some roof for the school and some water tanks and a, and a pump for yeah. the water, oh, good, no worries. He said, oh, they'll give you everything. Wow. Well, we haven't been able to get back. Yeah, the stuff's still there. Wow. I'm just absolutely gobsmacked hearing this, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, That's all Kiwi stuff. Well, the Kiwi stuff, um, we've, I know from the photo, the, the bloody Ventura, the Corsairs and the bloody P-40s and, and the Avenger of Kiwi. And if we've been a Kiwi Avenger, it won't be a General Motors build, it'll be a Grumman build, it'll be a TDF, yeah. not an M. Yeah, that's right. Which um, are very, very rare. Yeah, and then he says, all oh, the other, the blue aeroplanes with the broken wings. <laughs> and I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go, I want to go now. Yeah, so do I now. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. but there, there's no denying it. it. I don't know whether it takes courage or stupidity to go to these places because it's fucking dangerous. Yeah, you know, your work. life's buddy. A, a moment in front of you at any given time over there because either disease, insect or bloody animal or snake bite's going to get you or they'll hack you yeah. and yeah. that's the problem. It's always been a problem going to the villages. You, you need to have a basic understanding of etiquette and manners and all the rest of it. You put a word or a foot out of place and you'll be pig food. Yeah. And then yeah, you know, they hack up white men and feed them to their pigs. Yeah. They get rid of the evidence. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ian. Oh, yeah. really no, good to enjoy that too. Oh, we right. certainly did. Well, I should say uh, here a big thank you to Ian for a fascinating, uh, uh, a remarkable story. Absolutely. Oh, one thing you can derive from is I'm basically full of shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, thanks very much for covering that for us, that's terrific. Yeah, thank you Ian, it's uh, really fascinating. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show.